We are going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 9, and we're just going to dive right in with verse 30. We left off, verse 29. Then they, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, they departed from there, and they passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know it. Now, over the next two and a half chapters or so, Jesus is going to be taking a direct and deliberate journey towards Jerusalem. He begins, he departed from there, he begins in the region of Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi. This is the northernmost region or area of Israel. So he begins there in the north, and he makes his way south to the region of Galilee, this collection, compilation of towns that surrounded the Sea of Galilee. So he travels south to the sea. He then travels northeast along the Sea of Galilee, making his way, as we'll see, to Capernaum. From Capernaum, he'll travel, continuing south down the Jordan River Valley. He'll work his way up east into the Judean wilderness. We'll note that he'll travel through the cities of Jericho, Bethpage and Bethany before finally arriving in Jerusalem. But we're told that as Jesus is making this direct and deliberate journey, Mark includes kind of an interesting detail. He tells us that Jesus did not want anyone to know it, which is kind of odd. And I think there are two reasons that Jesus is wanting to keep his journey on the DL, and that is first that he's on a timetable. Jesus is wanting to arrive in Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover. And this is important because Jesus will be making his final journey to Jerusalem. He'll enter in on that Sunday, the triumphal entry. He'll be betrayed, be crucified, be resurrected the following Sunday. So Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. There's a lot of symbolism as to why he's wanting to make sure that these events occur in coalition with the Passover. And so as he's making his way down, he doesn't want to get distracted. Entering the region of Galilee, this is his base. People were known to flock out upon the arrival of Jesus. He would often travel with a multitude. He was being thronged by the multitudes. Jesus is wanting the information about his travel plans kept on the back page so he could travel with some kind of expediency. But the second reason is we're told that, that Jesus wants to focus his attention on the disciples. Verse 31, and as they traveled, he taught his disciples, saying, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask. Now, this is the second time that Jesus has taught the same message. The first time we found in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he would be rejected by the elders, the scribes, the priests, that he would be killed, and then after three days he would rise again. The second time, here, where we find in, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus introduces a new wrinkle. I don't know if you noticed it. The new wrinkle is that he makes it clear that the Son of Man is what? Is being betrayed. So in addition to being rejected by the, the scribes and the elders and the priests and being killed and being resurrected, Jesus is telling his disciples that he is also being betrayed. It's a new wrinkle. And this is an active verb. Now, we don't know much about Judas and the plot that he hatched to betray Jesus. We don't really have much of a time uh, timetable. Uh, when he hatched the plot, the organization behind it, the give and take between Judas and the Pharisees, lots we don't know, except for at this point, we can say with certainty that Judas has begun his devious plan that the Son of Man is, it's present, it's active, being betrayed. Now, whether this is just that Judas has made the decision within his own heart, or he's actually stepped out and tried to lay out some plans, Jesus has traveled, his itinerary, everything's set up. They know where Jesus will be. They know when Jesus will be. Jerusalem, Passover, 
could be that Judas has had some conversations with the Pharisees. Before we progress, though, I want to note one thing, because this is the second time Jesus has predicted the coming events. And note that Jesus, when he talks about his death, every occasion that Jesus talks about his death, he always couples with it the resurrection. You will never find Jesus speaking of his death without also following that up with the resurrection. And I find that so encouraging because Jesus so often, he encourages us to a path towards the cross, a path of death, a path of sacrifice. But Jesus always couples those lessons with resurrection, with glory, with encouragement. We also find here a sad admission by by Peter. Don't forget, Mark's account of the narration of the story is given to us probably by Peter. And Peter says here, in regards to Jesus' lesson, he says that we did not understand what Jesus was talking about, and we were afraid to ask. You know, it, it wasn't a sin. It wasn't wrong. It wasn't a condemnable offense that they didn't understand that intellectually they were having a hard time wrapping their brain around what Jesus is saying. Their error came in the reality that they were afraid to ask. You know, it's okay to have questions. It's what you do with those questions that's important. Do you bring those questions to Jesus? Or are you afraid to ask? And let's be honest, there are all kinds of reasons that we often cower in fear when we should just simply ask. We're going to leave a little bit more of the application therein to our B-sides. Verse 33, and so Jesus came to Capernaum. So he's left Caesarea Philippi. He's come south, worked his way along the northeastern rim of the sea. He's come to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, asked the disciples, what was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Now, in the house, we've mentioned this before in our travels through the Gospel of Mark, but this uh, vernacular, the the definite article, the, indicates that this is a house we should know about, that this is the house. Well, the only house that we have mention of goes all the way back to Mark chapter 1, and it just so happens to be the house of Simon Peter. More than likely, they come to Capernaum, they come to Peter's house, and this is where they lodged, the only house mentioned in Mark's account. It seems likely, and we'll reiterate, that Jesus' headquarters being in Capernaum, his headquarters more than likely being the house of Peter, there's some interesting implications there. But we're told that Jesus asked them what they were disputing about as they traveled. (laughs) Understand, he asked them. The verb tense here indicates that this was not a singular event. But once they got to Peter's house and they're kicking back and they're unwinding and they're eating and they're fellowshipping and they're spending time with each other, that Jesus has asked on multiple occasions that this seems to be the direction, the course of the conversation that Jesus wants uh, to enact He keeps asking, hey, what were you guys talking about as we were traveling? What what was it that you were discussing? Over and over and over again, Jesus is asking them, and you can see the scene here. Because as Jesus is asking, the disciples are doing a two-step. They're continuously trying to change the conversation. Why? Well, because they were disputing. This word dispute means that they were arguing. It actually can imply a heated argument. So it wasn't that they were having a conversation that Jesus found interesting. It's that they were, they were arguing to the point of blows. And what were they arguing about? Why was it that in response to Jesus's repeated attempts to get them to answer what they had been disputing, why do they keep silent? Their argument, what they were arguing about what they were discussing was who would be the greatest. It makes sense why they wouldn't answer Jesus. It seems trivial, kind of embarrassing. And why would they be arguing at this point about who would be the greatest? Well, it could be that in response to the fact that Jesus did show a little preferential treatment, 
that when he went up onto the mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, that he left behind nine and he only took with him Peter, James, and John, that once he came back down, Peter, James, and John are, are a little puffed up with pride. They're like, yeah, we're part of the inner circle and you nine are just on the back burner and the nine are like, no, the only reason Jesus took you guys with him is because you're always up to no good. He had to babysit you. He could trust us back down here on the mount. And they're arguing back and forth, not to mention they're making their way to Jerusalem, and they're anticipating something to occur. They're anticipating an event. They're anticipating a glorious arrival. They're anticipating a revolution, Jesus, to establish the kingdom. And so they're disputing, they're arguing about who's to be the greatest, and they never answer Jesus. There's not an answer, but we're told that in response to their silence, Jesus sat down. Now, this was customary. In Jewish culture, the teacher would always sit, and everyone else would stand to listen. I don't know why we've gotten this backwards these days, but it's the opposite. So Jesus sat down. He called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone desires to be first, now I can see them getting excited, maybe a little tentative, Jesus is going to start to teach about what they've been discussing. If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, though they had refused to answer Jesus' question, knowing what their argument was about, Jesus decides he's going to use the occasion to teach them an important lesson concerning greatness. I think this is why Jesus was asking them why they were disputing amongst themselves to, to begin with. Jesus knew, but he was trying to get them to admit what they had been discussing so that it would establish the platform and some context for an important lesson that Jesus wanted to teach them. Now, they never respond, and so Jesus decides to go right into it. He begins by saying, if anyone desires to be first, now this word desires it's the Greek verb thelo, which means to have in mind or to be determined. And so note, Jesus says, if, if anyone wills or determines or has it in their mind to be first, this phrase to be first is actually the Greek adjective protos, meaning to be first in rank, chief or principal. So if anyone desires to be first... Now, initially, I have to make an observation of something that I find fascinating, truthfully. But, but note that Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples over their argument concerning greatness. Do you realize that it is not wrong to desire greatness? He doesn't rebuke them. You know, the desire, the human desire for achievement for success, to accomplish something, to have influence, notoriety, even acclaim, things that we would describe as greatness in human terms. That desire, the human desire, it's not wrong in and of itself. Jesus says, if anyone desires to be first, to be great, he doesn't rebuke them. He says, if you desire it. But note, that the underlying distinction, as we'll see, is the difference between our desire for personal greatness versus a desire for kingdom greatness. I'm confident that the desire to do something noteworthy for Jesus, as servants of the king, the desire to make a great impact for the cause of Christ, the prayer, Lord, I want to make a difference. I want you to use my life for great things. I want to make a, a difference. That desire is not wrong, nor ungodly, or grounds of rebuke. However, it's how we go about achieving this desire for greatness that's of most importance. If we want to be great in the kingdom, then we must operate according to the rules of the kingdom. 
Jesus says, if anyone desires or determines to be first, if you desire greatness, and then what's he gonna do? He doesn't rebuke them. He's now going to explain how that's to be achieved. He says, this person shall be last of all and servant of all. Shall be last of all. The two words that jump out to me are be and last. You know, Jesus is describing here our perspective of our position. No, he says to be last, not to do last. My mom would always use this verse as the reason why uh, I should willingly allow my siblings to jump in front of the line and I should be in the back. And my mom would always say, don't, don't forget. You know, those who desire greatness, to be last. Well, that's not exactly correct. Jesus is not describing in this first part an action. He's describing a position of the heart. To be last is not to do last. It's a beatitude. Because Jesus is encouraging us to view ourselves as last. It's a position of the heart that Jesus is exhorting us towards, not an action. You see, the person who really desires greatness, to be great, will possess, must possess, a minimal perspective of self and instead prefer others as being greater than himself. You see, and the person who truly wants to be great in the kingdom of God, this person can't have a sense of entitlement or a prideful view of self-worth. If anyone who desires to be first, let him be last. Be last. Our perspective of our position. But then he says, and be servant of all. If initially Jesus describes our perspective of our position, here Jesus is now describing the action required of our position. This word servant in the Greek, it's literally one who executes the command of another. It's the servant of a king. A modern translation would literally be a waiter or one who serves food and drink. You know, in Rome and the culture of the day, a person's power was determined it was viewed, not by how many people you served, but rather by how many people served you. That's how they marked greatness. In many ways, it was never even monetary gain. It wasn't the amount of money you had. It was the amount of servants you had that noted a person's greatness or their power or their influence. And yet Jesus is saying a truly great person will not only have a humble perspective of themselves, that they'll view themselves as last, but they will demonstrate this perspective by their service or through their service of others. This word all, we've noted it's used twice here, to be last of all, to be servant of all. It is a fascinating word in the Greek. The Greek literal translation of this word all is all. All, everyone, everyone, your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your coworkers, your boss, your enemies, the Democrats, the Republicans, everyone, that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you should view yourself as being, as being least of all, that, that you should prefer everyone, everyone else ahead of yourself and demonstrate this perspective by a desire to serve all of these people. That that's true greatness. Let me give you a litmus test. How do you react if you're treated as a servant? That'll often tell you whether or not you view yourself as last and you seek to serve others. If you're to be a servant, how do you react when you're treated as a servant? 
Are you humble? Do you seek to prefer others? Man, that's a heavy test. But I also want to make an observation. The context here. The disciples are arguing about what? About who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Ironically, who was the greatest in the kingdom? It was Jesus. You see, my second observation here is that Jesus is ultimately, in this statement, he's describing himself as God. Jesus took a lowly position by humbling himself and coming as a man. Jesus made the decision to set aside heavenly glory and to come and to be the last of all. And as a man, he came to what? To do his will? No, he says, I've come to do the will of my Father. And how did he do that? By serving others. Jesus, he models this for us. And I find that so encouraging because Jesus never asks us to do something that he himself would not be first willing to do. That Jesus came and he humbled himself. His perspective of himself was lowly and he came to serve. But you know, we should also observe here that Jesus' path of greatness towards greatness, it really defies conventional worldly wisdom, doesn't it? I mean, the world, the world doesn't minimize the desire for ambition. As a matter of fact, we're encouraged to try to be successful, to make something of ourselves, to be great. And, and the world makes it very clear the path towards worldly greatness. And it's in total contradiction to what Jesus says. Because the idea of being last and preferring others and serving all, well, how do we climb the ladder? How do we really gain power? This doesn't work in the workplace. I'd continue to be passed over for promotion. The rat race we call this world, it's backstabbing. It's undercutting. And yet Jesus, he's really communicating what true greatness is. Warren Wearsby commented, he said, the world's philosophy is that you are great if others are working for you. But Christ's message is that greatness comes from our serving others. Ralph Waldo Emerson he stated, a great man is always willing to be little. Martin Luther King, I think he said it well. Not everybody can be famous, but everybody can be great because greatness is determined by service. That's what Jesus is saying. And at this point, as we transition, Jesus is now going to teach the disciples six attributes of a servant. If you want to be great, the greatest in the kingdom. Well, the greatest in the kingdom is a servant of all. But now I'm going to teach you some attributes, some things about being a servant. First, a servant expects nothing in return. Verse 36, then Jesus, he took a little child and he set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him into his arms, he said, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, I want to note something that is often a misunderstanding or what fosters sometimes misapplication of this passage. And that is that Jesus is just speaking about how we view children. Or that his, his point here is about how we should view little children and, and how the church should go about reaching little children and how we shouldn't keep the little children from Jesus. And, and yes, there is a, a point of application that can be made about Jesus' view of children towards Satan's view of children and how Jesus loves the little children. But note that in context, Jesus is talking about servanthood and he's using the child as an object for an illustration the lesson is not about the child. The lesson is about being a servant, and the child is just being used as an illustration. This word, little child, the phrase, it can be viewed as being more than just a, a, a child, but rather speaking of a person's stature. The little children can, can imply a person with no significance, 
or a person with no fame or no acclaim or no notoriety. In the first century, children, children were regarded as the lowest rungs of the, the social ladder. They were viewed as insignificant, most often simply viewed as property. So why use a child to make this point, that a servant should expect nothing in return? Well, first, children aren't demanding. I mean, it's a reality. Anyone with a child, you care for your children, they do not care for you. They don't. It's all about what they want and you getting it to them quick. And if you're not operating on their timeline, they're going to let you know. I mean, they do. Children are demanding. They're little takers. It's like a little leech. They just suck onto you. And they take everything. Your money, your energy, your woman. Little monsters. Children. You care for them because you love them, but you don't care for them because you're expecting them to now care for you. Well, maybe one day. But secondly, and I think this is the greater point, a servant should expect nothing in return. And so Jesus uses a child. Why? Because when you serve a child, you can't expect anything in return. A child, serving a child doesn't advance you. It doesn't advance you. You don't serve a child because you're expecting something back. You serve a child because you love the child, because you have a heart for the child, because they're your child. I mean, it's a great demonstration of grace, of love, of real servitude. The point Jesus is making is that we should serve people, those around us, the less fortunate, without selfish motivation or personal ambition. If you really want to be a servant, serve not for what you can get back, but rather for what you can simply give and don't expect anything in return, like you would a child. But also observe that Jesus here, in giving us motivation to serve those where we can expect nothing in return, he places the entire context to himself, doesn't he? Our service of others in relation to himself. Whoever receives one of these, in my name does what? Receives me. The truth, the point, is that no matter who I'm serving, I'm ultimately serving who? I'm serving Jesus. So if I serve my enemy and I'm expecting nothing back, not a kind word, that neighbor that's a constant pain in the neck, I'm serving that person not because I'm wanting something back, but because my service to them is a service to Jesus. And if I keep that in context, I can serve anybody because I'm always serving the Lord. But the second thing, the second point is that a servant, in addition to serving without expecting anything in return, a servant should avoid sectarianism. Verse 38, now John, John answered Jesus. I love this about the disciples, always answering when they're never asked a question. He answered Jesus and he said, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. So we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, yet alone casting out a demon, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, the issue that John brings up is that there was someone, this unnamed individual, who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And to cast out a demon or to perform any kind of a work in the name of something was to enact the authority therein. So to, to perform a miracle in the name of Jesus was to perform a miracle in the authority of Jesus. And so this person was doing this deed, but since they weren't one of the twelve... Since they didn't roll with the posse, John says they didn't bring the issue to Jesus. 
They took it upon themselves. They jumped to the forefront and they rebuked this man. They forbid him from working any kind of miracles in the authority of Jesus. The reason, understand, that they forbade him, the explanation that John provides, know what it is. They forbade the man, why? Because the man did not follow Jesus, us. He wasn't one of us. He wasn't one of them. Now, ironically, keeping in context, what had the nine disciples just failed to do? They had failed to cast out a demon. And what's happening? One of these guys that doesn't have apostle on his name tag is performing miracles by casting out demons. And you can sense maybe a little jealousy here that the motivation behind why they would rebuke this man is because this guy's showing up the guys who are going to be great in the kingdom. Yet Jesus' response, his response is he who is not against us is on our side. The disciples' rejection of this man was based in affiliation, not doctrine. Isn't it sad that the church, when you look at the church, that as servants of the king, we fail to get along with one another. And I'm not just saying this in the sense of attacking denominations, that <laughs> yeah, we're non-denominational. On the front of our church, we say we're not a denomination, so let's go after them. Even us, that even the non-denominationalists look at the denominationalists and we divide that we reject each other, that we break fellowship with one another based not on doctrine, but by who we hang out with, by what circles we roll in. Note that Jesus established the basis of unity. How did he establish the basis of unity? In my name. You see, a true servant will avoid insignificant disputes and instead pursue commonality. Instead of us searching for what can divide us, why don't we instead focus on what can unify us? What can be the basis of our relationship or our brotherhood or our co-servitude? Instead of looking for why we shouldn't associate or affiliate with one another, why don't we instead look for what can connect us instead of what divides us? We should be gracious and we should be kind even to people who aren't in our group. I love what John Corson said about this. He said, we should take a lot more things a lot less seriously. And it's true. You know, the Corinthians, you know, that solid, healthy, foundational church, the Corinthians, their biggest problem, what Paul opens his first letter rebuking them over, it was sectarianism. That some said well, they were of Paul and others of Christ and some of Apollos. And he rebukes them. We should be one. I heard one pastor say, the more spiritual a man becomes, the less denominational that man becomes. And it's true. You know, if we couple Mark chapter 9, verse 40, where Jesus says, who, he who is not against us is on our side. If we couple that with Matthew's account, chapter 12, verse 30, where, where Matthew says, concerning Jesus, that he that is not with me is against me. So Mark says, he who is not against us is on our side. Matthew says, he who is not with me is against me. If we combine these two ideas, we see that it is impossible to remain neutral when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. That neutrality in regards to a position concerning Christ is not an option. Lots we can say concerning that. We'll leave that to a B-side. Our third point here, conserving six attributes of a servant, is that a servant understands that the stakes are high. He understands the stakes are high. Verse 42, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble. Now, Jesus is continuing to use the child that's present as a further object lesson. 
So whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I've heard this passage twisted and warped to mean all kinds of things. As a matter of fact, it's hard to find true consensus on what Jesus is really trying to communicate. But let's break this down as simple as we can. Whoever causes, whoever causes, or whoever literally were to cause, it's an active. One of these little ones, now as we've established, Jesus is not just speaking of children. He's speaking to those that are weak, those that are insignificant, to, to the least of us. So whoever were to cause, one of those that are the least of us, who believes in me to stumble, who believes in me, in Jesus, to stumble. This word stumble, it's not the idea of like that I'm stumbling. It's more of the idea that I'm falling away. The word is literally scandalizo, or to cause someone to fall away. It's not that someone stumbles in their faith or their belief concerning Jesus. The idea is that someone falls away in their belief concerning Jesus. So what Jesus is saying is that if there are someone or whoever were to cause one of these little ones who believes in me to fall away from me, it would be better for him. Or literally, it would be preferable for him. So what Jesus is saying is that as a servant, if you were to do anything to cause someone to fall away from me and belief in me, before you do whatever it would be to cause that to happen, it would just be better if you go kill yourself. Or if we were to tie a millstone around your neck and throw you into the deepest part of the sea, it would just be better for you, instead of you causing someone to lose belief in Jesus, it would just be better if, if, if you died the horrific death of drowning, which let's be honest, I have two kind of deaths that freak me out. Being burned to death freaks me out, although they say, and I don't know how they really know this, they say that within the first couple moments, like, like you've lost your nerve ending, so like you can't even feel it anyway. I don't know about that. Fire freaks me out. Drowning. You ever had those dreams where you're drowning and you're like, ah, like you're like, ah, it just wigs me out, the whole idea of dying by drowning. And yet Jesus is saying that would be preferable. Now, what's he saying? What lessons is he communicating? He's saying first that the worst thing a person can do is to cause a new believer to fall away. I mean, and as a servant, we serve the king. And this is a good exhortation that the worst thing you can do as a servant of the king is to cause a follower of the king to stumble and fall away, which then leads us to the second important lesson here. A servant should safeguard against committing such an egregious sin. And how do we safeguard against causing one of these to stumble? Well, he's going to answer this. Because the fourth thing we should note is that a servant, because he knows the stakes are high, he should deal with himself radically. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into, into life, literally the life, speaking of eternity, maimed, rather than having two hands to go to hell and to the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm, speaking of the person who goes, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay, there's three things that freak me out about dying. Fire, water, and, and maybe a worm that's gonna eat me to death. That'd freak me out as well. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet and to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, rather than having two eyes, to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is the second time that Jesus has taught this, this lesson. The first time we find in Matthew chapter 5, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, almost verbatim, teaches the disciples and the multitude this lesson. The repetition 
especially on the way to Jerusalem, indicates for us that this is something very important. The further repetition of Jesus' lessons here concerning hell are also very important. Jesus speaks of hell more than any other person in Scripture. With the sake of time, we're going to leave that to a B-side. We're going to discuss hell in some great capacities. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying here that if there is anything in your life as a servant, knowing that the stakes are high, knowing what's, what we're really dealing with, life and death and heaven and hell and eternity, if there's anything in your life that would cause you to sin and, and by chance cause one of these little ones to stumble, a servant should be willing to take radical action to cut it out, cut it off knowing that it would be better to enter into life maimed than to go to hell where their worm does not, d- not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, Jesus here is obviously being figurative. He's not being literal. And there have been folks through bygones and ages past that have taken Jesus' statement literally and have cut off things that they really should not have cut off. To me... What Jesus is teaching us here is what I'd like to call the Joey Gladstone philosophy concerning sin. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Joey Gladstone philosophy concerning sin, hearken back to Full House. Because what is Jesus saying? He's saying that when it comes to your sin, you need to cut it out. Yes, that was a Full House reference. Sin, sin to the inner person is what a cancerous tumor is to the body. And as a servant, you need to be willing to deal with it immediately, drastically, radically. And why? Because guess what? Sin will deal with you radically and drastically. Now, sin... Sin is a lot like kudzu. You see it. It pops up. A little sprout. You need to deal radically then at that moment. Why? Well, as any good southerner knows, kudzu, if you don't deal drastically with it, it will deal drastically with you. And it will grow. And it will spread. And it will multiply. And it is not containable. Sin. Jesus places kind of his illustration in three contexts. He speaks of the hands, right? If your hands cause you to sin, cut it off. Now, why do we know that Jesus isn't being literal? Well, you can cut off one hand. And guess what? Your other hand, the hand that remains, is very capable of finding sin. And you can cut off that hand, and guess what will happen? You've got two nubs now that are very capable of finding sin. It's like Monty Python in the Holy Grail. Like you can cut off limbs and cut off limbs, but you're still going to find yourself with the motivation. So you can cut off your hand. What is Jesus speaking? He's talking about what I do. And then your feet. You can cut off a foot, and you can still be mobile. You can cut off two feet. You can hobble around. You can cut off your legs and you can army crawl. But Jesus is speaking of where I go, of what I do and what I go in the eyes, ultimately what I desire. We need to deal drastically with sin before sin deals drastically with us. And Jesus places this in context, a great context, with eternity being weighed in the balance A servant knows what's at stake. And so it's almost though that Jesus is saying, because you know what's at stake, you should deal drastically with your sin. And if you're not willing to deal drastically with your sin and in the process of sinning cause one of these little ones to fall away, then you should just tie a millstone around your neck and throw it into the ocean. Why? Because if not, there is a greater death awaiting you. And that is hell. It's almost though that Jesus is placing death by drowning in context as being more preferable than what? 
death and hell. Fifth, a servant. A servant knows that his life is about preparation and reward. Now, admittedly, the next two verses are probably the two most complicated verses in the entire Gospel of Mark. Let's read through it. We're going to deal with it systematically. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrificed, every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Now note how the flow of what Jesus is saying transpires. Everyone, speaking of a person, everyone will be seasoned with fire and every what sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. So everyone will be seasoned with fire. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. This word seasoned, it's the Greek word helizo, which means to salt or literally to season with salt. I love how the King James Version translates this passage because it's a little more accurate. The King James Version says, everyone will be salted with fire and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. That's how the King James translates this. A servant will be seasoned with fire. And what does this speak of? Well, ultimately, I think that this can speak of two things. First, obviously, it speaks of the purifying effects of tribulation, of trial. Knowing that a servant will encounter situations that are difficult. Jesus is saying, serve. Knowing what that there, that in the service of opposition, in the service of what's awkward, in the service of tribulation and trial and awkwardness, in the service of these things, when it's it doesn't feel good when it's difficult, when it's trying. In the process of doing that, you're being seasoned with fire. You are being purified. You are being prepared. Fire in Scripture speaks of, of the, the burning away of the dross, of impurities. That in serving when it's difficult, in serving when you don't want to, that you're being seasoned by the fire, that you are becoming a better servant, that you're finding yourself being transformed into more of the person of Jesus. Fire purifies by burning away the dross and cleansing us of impurities. It's as though you could say that for the servant, it's fire now and glory in eternity or glory now and fire and eternity. But I think that this seasoned with fire can also imply another thing. And that's often that, that what do we need to most fulfill the requirements of servanthood? Well, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, before sending the disciples out to be servants, he said, go to Jerusalem and wait for what? For the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that they needed to be seasoned. And there were tongues as a fire above their heads that they were seasoned, that in order for us to fulfill servanthood, we should be seasoned with fire, tribulation, but also the Holy Spirit. But we're also told that a servant's works, a sacrifice, will be salted with salt or seasoned with salt. And I think that there's two applications to this as well. First, that there is a judgment of our works that takes place. We know this in Paul's letters to the Corinthians. He talks about our works as the servant when we get into heaven. Uh, the beam of seat of Christ, where we're judged not for our sin, but for our works, for what we did in Jesus' name. And they'll be thrown under the fire as, as wheat and the dross, and those things will be judged. Salt. Salt penetrates. Fire purifies from the outside in, but salt sinks in. It penetrates whatever is salted and it burns out corruption and it stays the spread of impurities. That's what salt does. And so I think when we're told that a servant's works will be salted with salt, that we're speaking of judgment, that they're judged, that they're weighed. But I think it can also imply reward. There was in the first century what was called the solarium. It's actually where we get the word salary from. In first century culture, the Roman soldiers were given a solarium for their service. 
of their Lord, of the Caesar. And the solarium was salt. Salt in the first century was of crucial importance without refrigeration. It's how they were able to preserve their food without adequate medical attention. It's how they were often able to to purify wounds, to keep infection from spreading. Salt had multiple important functions, which is why Roman soldiers had no problems being paid with salt. I'm given this idea that every sacrifice shall be salted with salt, that we're to be rewarded. In Leviticus chapter 2 and in other places in the law, We're told that the sacrifices, before they were presented, the meat offerings, before they were presented before the Lord, they were to be salted. And as a servant of the Most High God, as a servant of our King, with all of these things, all of these attributes in mind, we should also serve knowing that our life is about preparation, that we're seasoned with fire but also that it's about reward, that we serve knowing that one day our works will be weighed and rewarded. But there's a sixth point, and we'll close with this. A servant. A servant should work to have peace with one another. Jesus closes this section by saying to the disciples, have peace with one another. This phrase, have peace, it's a verb. And it doesn't mean to be at peace or that may peace abide. It's a command. It's a verb. Jesus is saying to cultivate peace. He's saying to keep peace, to work at peace. And why is that? Why is it important for the servants of the king to have peace with one another? Why would Jesus feel obligated to issue this command? Because oftentimes, the most difficult thing about being a servant is the other servants to the right and to the left. And Jesus is saying that's not how servanthood should be. It should be a team task, a group endeavor, that we should serve together with one another but that we should keep the peace, that we should actively work at being peaceful. Because as sinful human beings, as those that can be jealous, can be envious, can be stubborn, we need peace. Now, what's interesting is that as we transition from here into chapter 10, okay, so Jesus teaches... Greatness, you be a servant. Now let me tell you about what really being a servant is like. Is it an accident that Jesus' sermon about servanthood would immediately transition into marriage? I don't think so. Because what's the ultimate test of servanthood? Marriage. And so, Father, with that, we thank you for what you say to us. In Jesus' name.